Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Welcome to Sydney Ideas. I am Ben Eggleton. I'm a professor at the University of Sydney and I'm the director of the University of Sydney Nano Institute, which is headquartered in a building about 400 metres across campus, um, a spectacular nanoscience building. Um, Unfortunately, the room is not available tonight and we're here in the auditorium. Our focus is on ways to transform our economy, society and everyday life through the science and technology of the nanoscale. And tonight we're going to hear some extraordinary examples of what nanoscale science is and what we're doing at the University of Sydney. So here at Sydney Nano, we have six grand challenges which aim to discover groundbreaking solutions to some of the world's most significant challenges. One of these is developing nanorobotics for health, and we will hear more about that later this evening. This year, we have a strong emphasis on nanohealth, and we will soon see the launch of the Sydney Nano 2020 nanohealth strategy. Tonight represents an important uh, first step as we undertake that exciting new journey. So tonight we'll be hearing from world leaders at the cutting edge, Professor Paul Weiss from the University of California, Los Angeles, who's um, joined us tonight, has been in Australia for about a week and has been to Australia a number of times and is preeminent in his field. I'll say more about Paul. As well as Dr. Anna Waterhouse and Dr. Shelley Wickham from the University of Sydney, Afterwards, we'll have a short conversation with our speakers, led by my colleague, Professor Julie Kearney. So now, a bit of background on our esteemed speaker lineup. Paul Weiss is a a nanoscientist and holds a UC presidential chair at UCLA. He studies the ultimate limits of miniaturization to develop new tools and a better understanding of biology. He applies these advances in a range of fields, including neuroscience and microbiome research. Shelley Wickham is a senior lecturer in the School of Chemistry and the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. Her research interests are in the self-assembly of matter on the nanoscale. Anna Waterhouse specialises in cardiovascular research and she holds positions at the Cardiovascular Medical Devices Institute as well as the Heart Research Institute. Both both Anna and Shelley are leading a project at Sydney Nano, one of our grand challenge projects. They'll be presenting together to share further insights on this project. And finally, Julie Kearney is our moderator for tonight. Her area of research is in material science at the nanoscale. She is a professor in the School of Aerospace, Mechanical and Mechatronic Engineering and is director of the Australian Centre for Microscopy and Microanalysis. Well, in fact, right now is acting pro-vice-chancellor enterprise engagement for the University of Sydney. So, without further ado, I would like to invite our keynote speaker, Paul Weiss, to take the stage and present the Sydney Ideas, Sydney Nano Public Lecture. All right, well, welcome. 
and let me thank our hosts for this uh, uh, wonderful opportunity to share uh, what it is we do and why. Uh, there are uh, tremendous connections between uh, Sydney and Los Angeles, as you'll see. We're probably a little bit too loud, as my students often tell me. Uh, so the key, key idea for tonight is the nanoscale is the scale of function in biology. And uh, semiconductor technologies, as you'll see, coincidentally, now are at the exact same scale of function such as in the brain here, uh, the synapse scale in which there's chemical communication between one cell and another, and that'll come into play as we go uh, further along. Uh, my own work is at very even smaller scales uh, where we are able to place individual functional molecules and assemblies, the smallest switches and motors in the world, and measure their structure and function, figure out how it is they work. And as you'll see, almost by accident, uh, we moved into the world of biology uh, through a, a connection that I made in a, in a previous job. And one of the things about uh, me and our science that I'd like you to know is maybe best told by a joke that I think represents our science, but my sons seem to think represents me, and it goes as follows. Knock, knock. Control freak. Now you say control freak who? <laughs> yeah. There are always two waves with that one. Okay. So uh, we really, as you'll see, like to have every atom uh, where we want it. In the switches and motors we study, we take inspiration from biology, but we use synthetic chemistry to make rigid structures so that we go from quantum mechanics to mechanical engineering and experiment theory and simulation. So we've built a whole series of microscopes that let us measure all those three things at the same time, tens and hundreds of thousands of times, until we can figure out how they work. And then we can vary them uh, one, of our, one of our goals is to understand why some of the motors in us can convert chemical energy to motion with more than 99% efficiency, and there's nothing humans can make at any scale that comes even close to that. And so we hope in a kind of reductionist way that we can put together the pieces to see how that happens, and maybe that'll impact our world, but we're, we're more at the curious stage uh, where we are now. Uh, let me, let me uh, bring up uh, where we are. So uh, here are a series of you know, synthetic structures, uh, basically parts of computers uh, that you have in your uh, phones and laptops and so forth. And really the key is right here uh, that the current iPhone, for instance, has 10 nanometer features, and that's the same scale as the synapse in the brain. So a neuroscientist colleague uh, back when uh, we both taught at Penn State used to taunt me by saying the brain's always been nano, that nanoscientists are just millions of years behind nature. And so uh, that was really part of drawing us into the field to see how nanoscience and nanotechnology could be put to use in trying to understand what a thought is, what a memory is, the difference between function and malfunction in healthy or diseased brains, or at least animal models of, of disease. And uh, we'll get back to Anne in a moment. Okay, uh, so uh, as uh, some of you know, I started a journal about 12 years ago, ACS Nano, uh, that tries to represent the field to the, both to uh, scientists and engineers and clinicians on the one hand, but also to the public, including you know, legislators and regulators. 
and we were asked at the 10th anniversary of the National Nanotechnology Initiative in the United States, which has been a program of over a billion dollars a year of funding for the field, what it is we've done with all that money for the first 10 years, and what we might do if we were funded for a second decade. So that seemed like an important question to answer. And when we started thinking about what it is we've done, we came to this odd conclusion uh, that what we learned is that we're able to make atomically precise structures, and I'll show you examples, that won't be a manufacturing tool, but it'll allow us to understand function at these very small scales and possibly to target structures that we might want to make in a more uh, reasonable and higher throughput way. But the other thing we learned was that even when we make precise structures and we measure their function over and over, we get different answers. And that heterogeneity is critical and important and interesting. And it certainly applies in biology, where we know that you know, our enzymes, for instance, will vary in their function, even if we have them identically placed in identical environments. Sometimes we attribute that to conformational changes. Sometimes it's contextual. For instance, you don't want blood clotting proteins to do that you know, while I'm standing here, or else I wouldn't be able to complete the talk. I just fall over. There, it's exposure to oxygen. But in fact, there are these, these functional variations that are uh, intriguing, and the ways that we measure structure in biology don't allow us to study those now because they're all averaging methods. Again, that's another talk, but it's something uh, that our lab works on. In nanoscience, we've really taken inspiration from biotechnology where we knew that we needed certain tools like DNA sequencing, protein sequencing, DNA synthesis, DNA... Uh, uh, what did I miss? Protein and DNA sequencing and synthesis for, yeah. And those, incidentally, were all developed by the same person uh, to be able to do those at high throughput. Lee Hood, who I spent a year with uh, once upon a time. So in nanoscience, when we try and answer a problem, we'll often develop new tools, and that's a significant part of what the efforts here in the Nano Center and the one that I ran at uh, UCLA do. The other uh, really surprising uh, thing we came to was that we have unique communication skills in the field. And that's because we developed by bringing people together from chemistry, physics, biology, engineering, math, medicine, toxicology, and so forth. And we adopted each other's approaches, took on each other's challenges, and learned to talk to each other to the point where we developed tools to address those problems. And you might think that that's common across fields, but it turns out not to be. So I'll pick on Professor Andrews' field, neuroscience, where in order to under understand the brain, you might think you would understand, you'd want to understand the chemistry, physics, biology, engineering, data science, information, and so forth, and so you'd welcome people from other fields, but you would be wrong. And so when we put the brain initiative together, and I mean we as nanoscientists in the US, we had to work to keep the neuroscientists from trying to kill it. And we'll talk about that uh, in a little while. And so that capability of bringing people together really is a special skill that our students and postdocs, I think some of you are here, are gaining that other people are not. And so I will argue that it's incumbent upon us to take on the challenges of other fields. I'll give you a couple of examples of where we've done that. 
and then we'll talk about what uh, we're trying to do in Los Angeles, what I hope uh, you'll be doing in Sydney, as uh, you heard from Professor Eggleton, is already uh, somewhat underway. I'll give one example here. I actually heard from Rami Aklu, the first author of this, uh, about an hour ago. He's an interventional radiologist, and every problem he takes on is related to a patient that he has. And he comes to our tissue engineers, to me, to one of my colleagues, Ali Kadamuseni, and he says, if I had this, I could have treated or saved this patient. And so we take on a series of very personal challenges with him, but one can apply that very broadly, and we'll talk about uh, how we're trying to do that. Okay. So, uh, once upon a time, you know, we entered this field, we developed this, these microscopes that could image individual atoms. And that was very exciting. Every time we went in the laboratory, we discovered something we didn't understand. About one in 10 of those we took on as a challenge, and maybe one in 10, maybe fewer, we actually figured out, and that's when we learned something. And for me, that was the exciting part of the field. It was going into unexplored territory and being able to find something new every day and learn something about this tiny world. To me, the most important image ever recorded, and this was one that I took once upon a time, as a single xenon atom, for funny reasons, I have a favorite rare gas, as my uh, advisor at the time, Don Eigler, did too. Uh, he had a uh, dog named Xenon, and I like Xenon for other reasons. Yep. Uh, if you know helium, you'll understand. So, uh, to me, the most important image ever recorded is this one, where two other scientists at a different IBM site, Joe Strosio and Randy Feenstra, looked at a semiconductor surface that had two different atoms. And one of the atoms had extra electrons, and the other one was missing electrons. It was gallium arsenide uh, surface for the uh, scientists and engineers in the audience. And so that, what they were able to do was, in two images that they overlapped, see where the electrons were and where the electrons weren't. Kind of like Japanese no theater, right? Pay attention to what's not there. And so they were able to effectively put on goggles and look at the surface the way an atom roaming around on it would, or part of a molecule would. And that opened up this idea that we could do more than measure structures, we could measure chemistry locally, and we learned to develop a whole suite of spectroscopies that let us measure uh, function and so forth, and we've done uh, quite a bit of that. The other thing that we did, and this was starting in my last four days at IBM, is we learned to move atoms around on the surface. And so the reason we originally did this is, as I mentioned, I put xenon down on the surface because I'd given up on the experiments that I'd tried the first 361 days and continued for another 13 years before we made them work. And I wanted to find out why these few xenon atoms were together on the surface, and so we rewrote the software to control the microscope, and I slid them out of the way and then discovered that they were sitting at a defect on the surface. So it was really a way just to peer underneath them Later, uh, Don Eigler, who I was working with, learned to spell IBM, our employer's name, and you know, that, that got to be a very famous experiment. Uh, we knew how to drag atoms around, but Erhard Schweitzer, who took my place, learned how to push them. And so he lined up these xenon atoms like this with one off the end, and then he shoved the one on the end into the line. So this one hit that one, which hit that one, which hit that one, which hit that one, which bounced the one on the end off, very much like Newton's cradle, but with individual atoms. Never published, unfortunately. He got in a coma and, uh, and ultimately left science, but, you know, 
like this, sort of. Okay, so that led us to realize that we could manipulate atoms on a surface, and a very famous image in our field is this one, where there's a circle of iron atoms on a copper surface, and these ripples aren't extra atoms, they're just electron interferences, like we've thrown rocks into a compound. And this is only at a particular energy, so if we had an atom or molecule that would like to have electrons at that particular energy, would sit right in the middle. And so that's something we pursued in my laboratory over the years, really looking directly at the relationship between chemistry and where electrons were and weren't. And actually, that was my career goal, like, for my entire life. And all of a sudden, we were doing it every day. That kind of led to a personal crisis, which is what, me, what got me to go out to Seattle and work with Lee Hood and see what else we might do. Okay. So really, where we came from, uh, was uh, we learned to study these very small switches and motors. We developed microscopes that let us do that. We developed the uh, ability to place molecules and even parts of molecules where we wanted them into controlled environments, controlling the, their interactions with their surroundings. And that's where you know, uh, it, we went all the way from the submolecular scale out to the centimeter scale in control and added this chemical dimension to the lithography that we're more used to from you know, the devices we carry around with us every day. So uh, at that point, uh, where you know, we were doing this series of measurements, uh, Professor Ann Andrews came in the laboratory and said uh, that she had an actual use for this ability to place, place molecules where we wanted and we could do something that would actually matter. I scratched my head about that. And uh, her interest is in anxiety and depression, and so she studies the serotonin system in the brain, and she proposed that we work together to capture proteins from the brain involved in neurotransmission to do this functionally directed proteomics, but also to develop artificial receptors that we could turn around and put in the brains of live-behaving animals to understand the chemical communication in the brain. And that sounded like an interesting project, so we started working together, collaborated, uh, starting in 2002. Uh, we made that sensor work in 2018, only 16 years later, after uh, moving uh, to UCLA in uh, 2009, and along the way we got married. <laughs> okay. So, uh, shortly after I got to UCLA, uh, the White House asked us to, the, not the current resident, uh, asked us to put together a group of nanoscientists who could propose a big project that would get public attention, that would show what it is we'd done with uh, you know, all the funding of the National Nanotechnology Initiative. The computer scientists had had a panel earlier. They'd proposed a couple of big programs, but it wasn't something that they could really publicize. And so I put this group together. Uh, the neuroscientists were also asked to do that. The astrophysicist, the astrophysicist came up with the idea of dragging an asteroid into Earth orbit and then being able to study it. It didn't get a lot of attention, but it made the news a little bit. And what we proposed as nanoscientists was to study the brain, to figure out how a neural circuit worked, to be able to stimulate and predict the result. And uh, then, since most of the committee was made up of physicists and engineers, we argued, and we argued for a couple of years because the physicists and engineers said, well, the brain's a computer, so if you measure the voltages, that'll do it. But it isn't. 
Right? We have about 100 different chemical neurotransmitters in the brain that are in interpenetrating networks. They're somewhat promiscuous between them. And so some of that was fought out in the literature. And then in December 2012, uh, we had a meeting with representatives from the White House and the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation and DARPA and others. And the National Institutes of Health representatives, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes said, unless you, you measure the chemistry, we're not interested and we won't support this. So at that point, everybody agreed unanimously it would be extremely interesting to measure not only voltages, but also all the chemistry. And uh, we proceeded, and, and in April uh, of the following year, we got to go to the White House uh, to, for the announcement. Uh, we had written up the technology roadmap for the Brain Initiative that we published a couple of weeks before the announcement in ACS Nano and brought in people from many fields to do that. And it's, it turns out to be a rule, you can't tell the government how to spend their money, you can propose things, and so as long as we published that before the announcement, we were good. So we made sure we got it done. Uh, President Obama renamed the initiative the night before, and so the names don't quite match, but turns out he's allowed to do that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, uh, after the Brain Initiative announcement, there was another initiative that people have probably heard less about called Precision Medicine. And that was, again, put together by the Office of Science Technology Policy in the White House. And it was viewed as less successful than the Brain Initiative, uh, in part because it didn't bring in people from any other fields. The people involved said, well, if you give us more support, we'll do more. And so when the uh, Brain Initiative and the Precision Medicine Initiative were compared, right, the difference, it was realized, was nanoscientists. And so there's a third initiative, the Microbiome Initiative, that was already under discussion, and we were asked to come in and again pre bring people in from other fields to understand how different species communicated and different cells within a species and between species uh, communicated. And so again, we put together a technology roadmap for that. We brought in people from all, all many different fields, oceanography, atmospheric science, soil science, data science, and so forth, and arguably less nano right, than the brain. But nonetheless, the, the nanoscientists and nanotechnologists were critical in bringing this group together and approaching the problem. Other countries have since started brain initiatives, microbiome initiatives. There are whole divisions of companies that started based on what we said about the uh, microbiome initiative, which you can read here. Okay. Within my group, I have a very wide range of uh, students, postdocs, trainees, visitors, and so forth from chemistry, biochemistry, physics, math, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, bioengineering, neuroscience, infectious disease, oncology, hematology, and so forth. And so we have this Tower of Babel. We're in a nanocosm, if you will, of the field, right? We teach each other language skills. We, we uh, share... Uh, challenges and, uh, and what the impact of addressing them would be. And the first MD to join the group uh, was Steve Jonas. And he was really the second one to come in after Ann and say, I have a use for that ability to pattern chemically. And his original idea, he, he had this special position at UCLA where he'd done his MD-PhD 
and then he was a resident, and pediatrics wanted to engage in more research, and so he had what was called a clinical fellowship, it's like a postdoc, that was fully paid, uh, but guaranteed him a faculty position when he was done. So for the academics in the audience, you'll, you'll or at least the faculty, here's how we look at postdocs. Postdocs join the group and they learn what they're doing, and then there's this variable region where they're productive, and then they look for jobs, and during their interviews, they really don't work in the laboratory anymore, and then once they get a job, they're writing proposals to get their new lab funded, and you know, we're delighted to send them off into the world, but that variable region can range anywhere from zero to the entire time they're with us. And so Steve, while he was a resident, that's when he did his preparation time and planning, and we, we wrote a bunch of proposals to foundations and got a pile of money uh, very generously supplied by these foundations to try some crazy ideas we had. And then the entire time that he was a clinical fellow, he was able to you know, work and move this along and then join the faculty as a colleague, and we still work very closely uh, together. And so uh, what he posed as a challenge to us, since he does bone marrow transplants, is that we needed to be able to do gene editing or other cellular therapies safely, meaning no viruses, no harmful chemical or physical treatments, of cells while a patient was in the office. So for a 12 kilogram child, if you're doing a bone marrow transplant of stem cells, that would mean a billion cells in an hour. If you're doing cancer immunotherapy, it would be 100 or 200 million. And so we posed that challenge to the group. We came up with six different ways to do it, and they all worked within a week which is completely different than every other experiment in our laboratory. For our you know, quantum initiative measurements of spin, we've been trying to build this microscope for 30 years and we're really close. Maybe just one more physics PhD will do it. And so this idea that you know, we can come up with these uh, solutions has been uh, terrific. And there's another special thing about UCLA. Around one courtyard, we have all of science, engineering, and medicine. So UCLA is about 75% medicine by people or money. And we have this infinite supply of people with patients and clinical problems. The researchers right, have, for their particular diseases, the model cells, the animal models, the patient cells, and you know, should we be so fortunate as to get so far, the, the patient's ready for treatment. And so we can rely on them to figure out what's the steepest path to get to patients. So the criticism we have of uh, many, we'll just pick on bioengineers for a little while, we picked on neuroscientists enough already, right, is that you know, they'll figure out how to turn a cell green and publish a paper. That is not our interest. And so we can use the genetic packages prepared by our colleagues, and we can be the delivery people right, who figure out how to do that safely. So you might have seen recent news about the treatment of one sickle cell patient, but that was using viral transfection, Right? In sickle cell disease, we have about 300,000 uh, new patients per year, generally of African descent, and they don't carry oxygen efficiently due to miscoding of hemoglobin. Beta thalassemia in South Asian and Southeast Asian populations, uh, same problem, different, different uh, configuration of hemoglobin, another 300,000 patients per year, and you know, treatable essentially in the same way. So in the US, the life expectancy of a sickle cell patient is about 40 years. They have a lower quality of life because of all the transfusions they have to go through. In Africa, the life expectancy is 10 years. 
Okay? And so if we could correct the genes in 10 to 15 percent of the bone marrow of those patients, they would no longer need those transfusions, and that would be curative. And so a number of our colleagues do bone marrow transplants every day in their uh, treatment. Don Cohn is a gene editing pioneer who cured bubble boy disease, severe combined immune deficiency, started the company Orchard Therapeutics that treats rare diseases. He has the sickle cell package for us and a laboratory that's able to transfect with either viruses or this electrocution of cells that really isn't a good idea to do for stem cells. The reason we don't do viral transfection are really uh, twofold. One is the cost per patient is between $500,000 and $2 million per dose per patient. Do the math, right? And the second is the transfection inserts DNA at a random position. So you can, through what's called insertional mutagenesis, you can give the patient some off-target cancer right, by accidentally turning on an oncogene. And so that would not be the way, you, you know, you don't want to risk killing the patient based on, based on uh, uh, the treatment. And so using some of the recent gene editing tools, we're able to put the corrected genes where we need them. It turns out in the treatment, you ablate maybe 10 or 15% of the bone marrow, and then just by intravenous injection of the corrected cells, those cells will go nest in the bone marrow and should be able to cure effectively uh, the patient. And so that's the idea. Yeah. And so uh, in, in coming up with these different ways to do this uh, treatment, we pulled in uh, people who developed uh, interesting and useful materials, people who developed uh, acoustofluidic methods, and people who developed lipids uh, that, are, that, are, that you know, keep the uh, microchannels we use for the, the treating the cells from clogging. And we've just pulled in people from around the world who we needed to move this forward. Now, uh, in LA, there's this, you know, this funny thing where you know, people look at it as this entertainment center and center of creativity, but we feel that pressure in the laboratory. If you're not doing something crazy in your laboratory, you're not doing your job. It's sort of a weird pressure. And the, there, there's an upside to that. That is, if what you're trying works, everyone goes, how do you ever think of that? Right? And you get a lot of credit for doing something creative. If it doesn't work, it turns out nobody ever hears about it. No downside. You know, then you waste a little bit of time. And so we use that to advantage. We, have, you know, we, uh, we look around at how we might work together with all these people uh, just around this courtyard. And you know, not only at UCLA, but also Caltech, USC, elsewhere. This is our nano center, purposefully built with these bridges. You know, it's about a third science, a third engineering, a third medicine, a little bit of law, public health, public policy, uh, theater, film, and television. Uh, we have an art gallery. Uh, we have 25 uh, startups being incubated. We have relationships with uh, a bunch of uh, different companies, 160 faculty, 1,000 students and postdocs, 2,000 users who come to use our microscopes, high-throughput screening, and other facilities. And uh, you know, also, it brings people together from not only around Los Angeles, uh, but around the world of uh, nanoscience. Uh, I see uh, this opportunity where, much as we did in our group, there's a, there are a bunch of curious faculty. So when you're a senior faculty member, you could put on all these advisory boards around the world, and you get shown other people's problems, and you're expected to come up with solutions, and it's a skill, and you get better and better at it. But there's no reason to reserve that for the 
the senior faculty. They are of, are of a terrific a second year grad student I was talking to this morning who started three programs. He's directing the head of cardiology at Cedars Sinai on an idea he had where they've put hundreds of thousands of dollars into one of his ideas in order to see if it would work in, in treating patients. And even while he's taking classes and being a teaching assistant, he's able to come up with a whole series of ideas and we grab the collaborators we need on each of those. And so we see this opportunity as a training, part of training of our students, postdocs, staff, junior faculty, and it's a self-selecting group. The people who are curious come in, everybody else, they come and they go, but if people can contribute, they, they keep coming back and we develop more and more people with those, uh, with those skills. And so we've taken on a series of, uh, you know, at least unsolved, if not refractory problems uh, in, you know, everything from uh, dentistry to chronic pain. Uh, we had a collaboration with a writer and director of Kung Fu Panda, who didn't graduate from high school. And he came up with the best experiments for us in how to avoid uh, opioid treatments in uh, chronic pain. You heard about gene editing. Uh, there's a big effort going in the quantum initiative, which is also a strength here. Uh, Sydney. Right? You have many of the same uh, features that Los Angeles does. You have terrific universities. You have a hospital right nearby. Uh, there, are, there are enormous opportunities for working together. I know Ben's brought in at least UNSW and his colleague Justin Gooding uh, to work together on these. But as a, a city and a field, we have this opportunity, and I think imperative, uh, for, for doing more. You're going to hear a little bit about uh, DNA nanotechnology. This is the father of that field, and I want to tell you a story about him that I wrote up in a conversation uh, that we had back in the second year of the journal, and that is he was trying to do crystallography. He was trying to measure these structures of molecules, but he could never get any crystals to form. And so he would go to the pub, and he would drink beer, and think, I'm going to get fired. And this is all in the conversation. I'm not giving away some secret or something. And on the wall of the pub was this Escher print. And it made him think that he could put structures together using DNA, as you're going to hear. And that was the, that was the birth of the field of DNA nanotechnology. It really came from fear of getting fired and beer and, and a creativity that was inspired through a necessity. So I'll uh, end by just putting up this uh, lovely painting uh, that uh, Andrea Selby uh, painted for the Microbiome Initiative, showing all the places that we wanted to study. And uh, thanks again so much for the, for the invitation. I look forward to the uh, continuing conversation and uh, returns to Sydney and many of your visits to Los Angeles. Thanks very much. So thank you, Paul, for a really excellent talk and a wonderful lead-in. Uh, what Anna and I are going to do now is try and set the context for how research like Paul's work is being done at Sydney University as well, and tie into that idea of DNA for nanotechnology. Um, and sort of the way this is done at Sydney University really typifies some themes that Paul brought up. One is interdisciplinarity, really close integration between, say, the sciences. So I'm from physics and chemistry and the clinical sciences. Yeah, so my name's Anna and I'm from um, the medical sciences and materials. All right. 
So this is kind of an overview of all types of bio-nano research done at the University of Sydney. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about all of this. You are going to have dinner tonight. Um, so there's a range of different nano health initiatives that uh, Ben mentioned. The core idea is that we're making new nanomaterials, new types of nano devices, and importantly, also studying the toxicity of these systems both in the body and in the environment. Um, what we're going to talk about very briefly is one of our initiatives, which is this grand challenge into molecular nanorobotics. And this was a really exciting project where we started with a question. And the question was one to surgeons. It was to ask them if they could go inside the body and see it as if they were there, how would that change how they treated patients? And this is a quote that came out of those those surveys, and this was from a heart surgeon, Professor Paul Bannon at the University of Sydney. And he said that if you could see inside blood vessels, so this is a blood vessel here, this is a red blood cell, and what you see here is the early stage of heart disease. So right now we can't diagnose heart disease at this stage. We have to wait till it gets much worse and so you have symptoms. And what he said is if he could diagnose heart disease at this stage, it would totally change how we treated patients. And as somebody coming from the technology side, that's very exciting. What if we could do that? Um, and that's our grand challenge. And so this is kind of an artist's impression, the artist is here in the audience, of how we might manage that. And so this is this idea of molecular nanorobots. This is a nanorobot here. This is one to scale sitting on a red blood cell. So our nanorobots would be about 600 nanometers, about 10% of the size of one of these red blood cells. And they could go through your vessels looking for this early stage heart disease to diagnose it and hopefully eventually to treat it. So how do you make a molecular nanorobot? That's a lovely picture. How could we actually make that? So I'm going to just give you one very quick slide of some of the technical side of that. This is, so we broke down the nanorobot into this idea that it has a core, it has to have a body, it has to have certain functions, it should move around the blood vessel to find those uh, early stage stages of heart disease, it needs to sense them, it needs to react, and eventually it's going to need to interact either with us to tell us what's happening or to interact, say, to release a drug. And this brings me to where Paul left off, which is DNA nanotechnology. This is the idea that DNA stores your genetic information, but as well as encoding your genetic information, we can program it with other information. In this case, information about how to assemble. Um, and instead of, it's like having smart Lego. Instead of having Lego that you have to put together, it's Lego where all the pieces know where to go. So you just kind of put them in a bag, shake up the bag, that's thermal energy, and they self-assemble into what you design them to be. As an experimentalist, that's really fun because you don't have to do a lot, you just look at it afterwards. So this is a technique that I use called DNA origami. And so this is paper origami, you take a two-dimensional piece of paper and you fold it up into a three-dimensional object. In DNA origami, we take a one-dimensional object, so a piece of DNA, and the same way we fold it up into, in this case, a two-dimensional object. So this technique was pioneered by Paul Rothmund at Caltech, and he made this smiley face here, but you can also do 3D structures. So at Sydney Uni, we're doing 3D structures like this. And we're trying to make bigger objects. We're trying to make something, so these little barrels here are 30 nanometers. We want to make something 600 nanometers. How do we make something bigger? It's like if you have origami, you have a bigger piece of paper, you can make something bigger. That's very challenging. Instead, we take lots of 
these small origami and we sort of treat them again like each origami is a Lego piece and build them up into bigger structures. Eventually that's going to make our core and that's going to let us build large complex nanostructures with lots of functions. The question then is how in the body would we see if they're doing what they're supposed to do? So I'm going to pass over to Anna to talk a bit about that. Thanks, Shelley. Yeah, so uh, the next phase is really to uh, visualize these nanorobots and how they would interact and function in the body. And to do that, we're actually creating uh, biomimetic environments that mimic certain aspects of health and disease in the lab in a miniature system. And those miniature systems are microfluidics, like you can see here uh, in this little video. It's a micron scale channel that we can put fluid into and flow fluid through. Uh, we can manipulate that fluid, and we can also add cells to it, so we can grow cells inside these miniature systems. So this is what we're using to study how the uh, nanorobots would actually bind to areas of disease, and also to study and design uh, the biocompatibility of these nanorobots so that they don't cause adverse effects like blood clots and inflammatory reactions. And so, as Shelley's mentioned, this is a massive interdisciplinary project that we're working on, and it's not just me and Shelley. Uh, we have uh, combined our expertise, but also our labs are embedded in the multidisciplinary initiatives at the university. So the Sydney Nano Institute is one, which you've heard a lot about already, and the Charles Perkins Center, which is a multidisciplinary initiative to study and tackle uh, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And that's the building that's right up outside the auditorium here. So not only do we have uh, support from these uh, institutes, we also link in with about 15 other groups that we've established uh, this collaboration with uh, through the different faculties, so the Faculty of Science, Engineering, and Medicine and Health, and multiple disciplines within those uh, faculties as well. So we're really uh, pushing this idea forward of creating these interdisciplinary teams that can work together to solve uh, a bigger challenge. And so with that, again, it's not just working at the University of Sydney. Uh, we've got partners and collaborators through, uh, around the world at different universities, and also building more local connections. So I'm also part of the Heart Research Institute, and we work with clinicians at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. And so through that, we're really tackling uh, this, this problem of uh, cardiovascular disease, which on a population and, uh, and healthcare basis is, is a huge burden. So just going back to what uh, Shelley was mentioning earlier about some of the other uh, nano projects that are uh, in this space, in the health space, um, we'd just like to highlight a couple that are run by, um, led by Wojciech Czarnowski, who's uh, working on this uh, nanovision uh, initiative to combine advances in nanomedicine, engineering, and synthetic biology to treat blindness. And he's doing that in collaboration with the Save Sight Institute. He's also working on another interesting project, which is uh, to create sustainable nanotechnology to look at uh, mitigating the risks, both uh, from a toxicity point of view and also from a social concerns point of view as well. So those two are really exciting uh, projects through the Sydney Nano uh, Initiative, and you can find out more information about those uh, on the Sydney Nano website. And finally, we'd just like to tell you a little bit more about how you can get involved in these, because we have a number of specific uh, opportunities. For undergraduates, uh, you can do um, a nanoscience major through any of the science uh, undergraduate degrees. And we also have um, a research uh, initiative that we run each year called Biomod, which is uh, an uh, international competition. 
and it, it enables students to actually get in the lab and do some hands-on research. We have a number of PhD opportunities that are on the Grand Challenges website through Sydney Nano. And we also organize uh, a conference, which is BEANS, which is Bioengineering and Nanoscience. And we'll have that later on in the year, so you can check out that website as well. And then finally, uh, we run through uh, Sydney University the Citizen Science, uh, and in particular the NanoLens project, which, uh, for example, has run um, events at the uh, Botanical Gardens to look at uh, the nanostructure of plants using microscopes. So people can get involved in that. Uh, and there's an upcoming project to find, I think, the slipperiest uh, plant in Australia, where people can do experiments with just water droplets and their phone and get involved in that as well. So I will leave it there, and uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, um, as Ben said at the start, my name is Julie Canny. I'm a professor in uh, the engineering faculty here at the university, uh, and I'm going to lead a panel discussion with our uh, three fantastic speakers today. I thought that uh, Paul did such a wonderful job of showing us how interestingly it's uh, often new advances in instrumentation and new advances in technology that are leading to big new discoveries in science uh, rather than even just ideas and concepts. Um, and it was really fantastic to hear from Anna and Shelley for, about their vision for what's possible in, with uh, nanotechnology, with the expertise and the facilities that we have here at the University of Sydney. Um, Anna or Shelley, maybe you could tell us if everything went fabulously well in your nanorobots ro project, how long would it be before nanorobots are a reality and we can use them in clinical settings? Well, as the technology side of this, I'm going to say this is where I'm immensely happy to work with Anna, who's someone who has seen the progress through from sort of initial idea to implementation of clinical devices. Yes, um, unknown. I would say. <laughs> I mean, if I'm, being, if I'm being honest about this. Of course. Um, so it is, it is tricky to predict that. If everything went perfectly, I would say a few years. But that's not how everything works in terms of science. And I think you mentioned, you know, 16 years for, you know, some, some projects. So it's really, it is really unknown. Um, we have done uh, translational studies and launched... Um, you know, companies based on some technologies that we developed, and that happened in probably about four or five years. Um, but that's not made it to the clinic yet, so that's uh, an extra step along the way. So maybe five to ten years, let's say. And then uh, maybe a question for Paul. Uh, projecting forward in 20 years, how do you imagine our lives will have changed as a result of uh, nanoscience and nanotechnology? Ah. Well, I would say they already have, right? The, all the technologies uh, we have in our hands and our, uh, I see a bunch of laptops open. Those are all made with uh, nanotechnology. Hopefully there'll be some impact in medicine. Uh, we're taking on challenges in energy harvesting, either conversion of you know, solar or wind or uh, blue energy, capturing you know, all the waves that come in every day, uh, carry a lot of energy that are basically uh, squandered in the, in the sense of our uh, use. Uh, we hope that we'll be able to monitor the air. You know, you had the bushfires here. Uh, there's uh, pollution around the world we'd like to watch. We don't really know the composition there. And so uh, in order to understand the toxicology and, uh, and to uh, protect ourselves and our, our uh, neighbors and, and around the world, you know, I think, I think we're going to want to understand what those 
you know, what those are and what the results of, uh, of uh, breathing that air is. Um, Anna and Shelley, I want to ask you a question that was uh, um, uh, sent to us from an audience member when they were registering. Um, they were asking how, in nanorobots, you would protect uh, them from attack from the immune system or from being uh, clogged by cholesterol and not being able to move through the body. Is that something you've considered? Mm, yeah, definitely. And so that's something that we're very aware of. And I've worked a lot in that space, looking at the biocompatibility of materials and devices. Um, so that's something that we plan on addressing right from the beginning, which is what we have been doing, uh, which is to uh, effectively design our nano robots so that they don't cause uh, those kinds of reactions. So we're actually looking at incorporating uh, different proteins and lipids and having them encased essentially so that they uh, don't cause those reactions and that's something that we're building in as we, as we go and so we can test that along the way. Uh, now, looking at the questions from the audience prior to coming, there were quite a number of questions about how people can get involved. Um, so how can uh, students or even non-nanoscience trained people get involved in nanoscience and nanotechnology? Yeah, so I, well, we mentioned a couple uh, right at the end. So um, one of the great initiatives that's run by um, Alice, Alice Motion and Chiara Nito here at the university is uh, the Citizen Science uh, Programme. And I mentioned that in the past they'd done uh, an event at the Botanical Gardens here in, in Sydney and uh, got everybody involved, um, all ages, to actually look at uh, nanostructures of plants under the microscope. And their next one is uh, coming up soon, I think. Um, uh, we can get the dates probably for people that want to know. Um, and that's an initiative to find Australia's slipperiest surface. Uh, Chiara Nito works in uh, material science and works on with slippery uh, repellent surfaces and plants. Coming back to the gentleman's point earlier about uh, nature-inspiring uh, materials and what, and what we make, that's exactly uh, that type of project. And uh, the, the idea is that you can measure uh, a droplet on a surface and uh, take a photo with your iPhone and, and do the measurements. So that, that, I believe, is kicking off soon. That's really cool. <laughs> Well, um, I uh, want to uh, take one last opportunity to thank uh, our three speakers today as well as uh, our audience for your participation in this Q&A. Um, I think we've had a wonderful sense about how uh, nanoscience research is uh, going to change our lives or it's already changing our lives. Um, uh, if you've been inspired by uh, tonight's presentations, there are ways, uh, as we've heard, that you can get involved. Um, Sydney Nano, which is the university's uh, research facility dedicated to uh, nanoscience-related research, has an open day in August, so um, come along to that. Um, if you're thinking of studying nanoscience or nanotechnology, do it. We need, you know, for these big challenges in the future, we need all the best people we can possibly get. Um, we have opportunities for students. Um, you can be an ambassador for nano in high schools. Um, we've got research projects where students can be involved with academics. Um, and there are ways that individuals can get involved to support the research that's done at Sydney Nano. There's uh, ways that we can have partnerships as well. So lots and lots of ways that you can get involved in uh, nano science research. Um, so with that, I'm going to close the proceedings and uh, let's have one more round of applause to thank our speakers tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. 
For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.